Welcome to The Common Law, the best and only podcast about the Minnesota Supreme Court. My name is Mark, and I'm here with my co-host, Allison. Today, we're going to be talking about drug-sniffing dogs and the Fourth Amendment. Uh, but first, legal news. So the first piece of legal news that I think we should talk about today is an update on the Fishbot case. So listeners of our first episode will remember that Michelle Fishbach is the president of the Senate, a position that, per the Minnesota Constitution, is then supposed to elevate to the lieutenant governor when the lieutenant governor seat becomes vacant. And as you know, because Dayton appointed then Minnesota Lieutenant Governor Tina Smith to Al Franken's vacant U.S. Senate seat, the lieutenant governor position became vacant, and then per the Constitution, Michelle Fischbach was supposed to elevate to lieutenant governor. However, as we mentioned in our last episode, Fischbach does not want to leave her post in the Senate, as the balance of power in the Senate right now is based on one vote, 34-33. So she says she's serving both roles, focusing on her senatorial role. When we recorded our previous episode, a constituent of Fishbox had sued her, saying she was violating a provision of the Minnesota Constitution that prohibits legislators from serving in more than one position of government, as Fishbach was apparently trying to do. So the suit, Dusowski v. Fishbach, had been filed on January 12th, but then one month later, on February 12th, Judge Guthman dismissed the case against Fishbach, saying that at the time that the constituent Dusowski had filed the suit, the constituent hadn't actually suffered any damages at that point because the Senate wasn't in session on January 12th. Uh, In fact, the judge said, we don't even know at this point if Fishbach is going to be senator because everything is hypothetical at this point because the session has not started. So the suit was premature. In the dismissal, Judge Guthman wrote, Petitioner Dusoski demonstrates no more than a hypothetical injury because it is not known whether the defendant will take her seat, whether the defendant will cast a vote, or whether the Minnesota Senate will allow her to serve. So the ruling left open this possibility, however, of another suit once the Senate was in session. So the session started on February 20th, about two months ago now. And Fishbach is definitely serving as a senator, and the Constitution then says she is also then serving as lieutenant governor. So as she's mentioned, she said she's going to focus on her senatorial role, and that's what she seems to be doing, which has resulted in some brutal headlines from the press, including one from AP's Kyle Kyle Potter on March 1st that says, Minnesota Lieutenant Governor deliberately skips duties. Harsh. Harsh. So she continues to decline or refuse to attend meetings that the Lieutenant Governor is in charge of. Couple weird twists in this story though that I think would be interesting to note for our listeners. One, Fishbach actually hasn't taken the oath of office for Lieutenant Governor yet, and has said publicly that she's not super concerned about ever taking that oath. So she may never, she may intend not to ever take that oath. And that might be part of an eventual legal strategy that she is hoping to preserve, that if she doesn't take the oath, she's not actually serving two roles. Um, But that leads to the second point, which is Dusaski, Fishbach's constituent, whose original suit was dismissed on February 12th, was essentially invited by Judge Guthman in that to refile her suit once the session restarted on February 20th, but has not yet refiled a suit. So people are kind of starting to wonder, where's this suit? Are we actually going to have a lawsuit on this issue? 
or not, because right now there's no pending litigation here. So Minnesota lawyers Kevin Featherly interviewed some people in the know about where's this lawsuit, why hasn't it been filed, Um, and so Kevin Featherly then talked to Ron Latz, a DFL state senator, um, and also attorney, who provided this quote, it's still under consideration, that's all I'm going to say on that one. And then Hamlin University political science professor David Schultz, who's also an attorney, responded to Kevin Featherly's questioning saying, well, that's a great question. I think they might be waiting till they get to a strategic point on some critical 34-33 votes where that where Fishbach's rule might have changed the balance of the voting. Because I think that given the Ramsey County opinion and given where the Supreme Court is going at this point, query what that means, I think there are questions about standing and about whether senators and constituents can raise this issue in court. So I think they're going to wait until there's a critical 34, 33 vote on something and then fight it out there. Right now, I think you can argue there's no injury because she hasn't cast any votes on bills yet that can be in dispute. I think they are waiting. All right, a few things. One, in the dismissal order, it seemed to me like Judge Guffman was saying refile as soon as the session starts, not refile as soon as you have some kind of crucial 34-33 decisive vote from Fishbach, right? Right. Um, It did say right now, I, I don't think Guffman wanted to opine any further besides saying we don't need to address this now because we don't know whether Fishbach is even going to take her Senate seat. We don't know whether she's going to try to play both roles, but I'm not sure he specifically said you would have to wait till the vote comes down to Fishbach's vote, but I think the point is if you're going to file litigation again rather than suffer another loss, you want to make sure it's clear cut. Um, But I don't know what they're thinking, so we'll have to keep you updated on the crazy swirl of constitutional political issues around this case. Maybe Ron Latz and David Schultz have thought about this more than I have. Almost certainly, yes. But I can't see why you would need uh, some kind of decisive vote from her to have standing. I mean, I get why the suit was dismissed uh, by Guffman, because she hadn't taken the seat yet. But now that she has, she... She is the representative and she's supposed to be the lieutenant governor. I don't understand what the votes would have to do with it. So that's one. Mm -hmm. Two, uh, I just want to applaud the Minnesota state courts for finding increasingly creative and novel ways to avoid large constitutional issues. not actually uh, weigh in. Across the board. I hope that they throw themselves a huge party and all tell stories of the ways that they tried to dodge these suits. Just let them fizzle before they have to make any decisions. I say that Mm non-ironically. This is nonsense that legislators should not be putting before the courts. Mm -hmm. And uh, I applaud the courts for their creativity. Yeah. And a DFL senator has actually proposed a constitutional amendment to amend the constitution to just let the governor choose the lieutenant governor. Um, and not create this succession from Senate president to lieutenant governor that a senator could refuse. I don't know if a senator has ever refused before Fishbach, but even the DFL senators at this point are saying, this is ridiculous. We need to have a functioning lieutenant governor and a functioning Senate, and this is obviously not working. Very silly. Um, Next legal item, uh, just as serious as the last. This is from the Star Tribune. Uh, It's a story called Twin City Attorney Sews Bridge to Help Buxom Women Stand Tall. This is our local gossip columnist, CJ. 
Um, and I'll just read you a couple sentences from the story. Uh, Criminal defense attorney Judy Sampson, tired of her breasts bouncing around, and instead of turning to a surgeon, she went to her sewing machine. To take the bounce out of her breasts, the non-fan of the sports bra designed a connecting clip called the Bra Bridge, patent pending, which launched nationally two weeks ago. So um, the fun thing about this story is it is a genre of legal news stories that I've noticed only since starting this podcast, which is like attorney does fun thing. Mm-hmm. Um, again, has and no, is less newsworthy. Right. That's hilarious that an attorney might have fun. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no information about what her legal career is in the article, um, except for that she's a, a criminal defense attorney. And uh, we're just going to play for you. Uh, this attorney actually created uh, what she calls a rap song um, to accompany her product. Um, we're going to present it without commentary. Check this out. My shoulders are slumped over and my confidence is lower. My boobs are past my ribcage. This is an outrage. The moving and the bouncing is no longer refined. Dang, this is blowing my mind. They need to be contained. Okay, maybe trained. A sports bra does the trick, but do I want them to stick? My options have run out until the bra bridge, no doubt. You gotta see the difference. It's not just an inference. This is the real thing. It's as good as bling. It's the bra bridge. It's the bra bridge. You snap it on and move them one by one. My shoulders are back. Check out my rack. How did they get so plump? I'm no longer in a slump. I can do Zumba, boom, boom, ba, boomba. The cleavage is here to stay even when I sway. No drifting past my ribs. I get first dibs. It's the bra bridge. It's a revolution or an evolution. No matter what it is, we have the solution. Out. Um, wow, that is shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to put the link to that in the show notes. There is an accompanying video. It's everything you mm-hmm. would expect it to be. I actually think the product is quite interesting. Maybe I'll try it out. Totally cool idea. Mm-hmm. So moving on to another piece of legal news. As most commoners know, Justice Strauss is now a federal judge on the Eighth Circuit, confirmed um, at the end of January, I believe January 30th. So his seat on the Minnesota Supreme Court is now vacant. They're sitting at six justices, and that seat is awaiting a replacement. So the Constitution of Minnesota permits the governor to replace any vacancies on the Minnesota Supreme Court, and it does not require Senate confirmation, like is required for the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, But Governor Dayton, I believe like most governors before him, chooses to vet applicants to the position through um, a special judicial selection commission that reviews applications for the position, and that commission then makes recommendations to the governor, and the governor chooses the nominee and appointee based on those committee's recommendation. So at the end of March, four finalists to the position were named, and I'll just walk through them briefly here for you. So the first is Democratic State Representative Paul Thiessen. Uh, He had been, um, he has been a Minnesota state representative since 2003. Um, He's previously been Speaker of the House and before that Chair of the Health and Human Services Committee. He's worked previously at Briggs and Morgan and as an appellate public defender and was a law clerk for uh, Judge Loken at the Eighth Circuit. The second one then is current Minnesota Court of Appeals Judge Lucinda Jessen. 
So before her appointment to the Court of Appeals, she was the commissioner of the Department of Human Services. She was also an associate professor at Hamlin University while she was a partner at Oppenheimer, Wolf, and Donnelly. Um, so she would be a natural fit to elevate to the Minnesota Supreme Court. The third one then is a district court judge, Judge Jeffrey Bryan. Um, before he was a district court judge, he was a U.S. attorney and a civil litigation attorney at Robbins Kaplan. And then the fourth and final nominee is Minnesota Tax Court Chief Judge Bradford de la Pena. Um, before his appointment to the tax court, he was a solo practitioner. Um, before he was um, the chief judge of the tax court, he was a solo practitioner, and then he had also previously worked in the Minnesota Attorney General's office and as an assistant state public defender. So quite a spread in the nominees from politics to current court of appeals judges to trial court judges to a tax court judge. Uh, yeah, that should be finished pretty soon. So it'll be interesting to see how it turns out. I'm sure the court is eager to get back to yeah. full slate of judges. Yeah, notably absent from the list is anyone with a background resembling now Judge Strauss's background from the academic world. I always kind of thought his rigor that he brought to the bench largely stemmed from his academic work because he was a professor be- before being appointed to the court by Governor Plenty, but... And then this replacement will make five of the seven Minnesota Supreme Court justices Dayton appointees. So that's quite a legacy that Dayton will leave. Yeah, between uh, the court has a mandatory retirement age of 70, and then uh, they've lost uh, Judge Wright to the Minnesota District Court and uh, Judge Strauss now on the Eighth Circuit. Uh, There's quite a bit of turnover. So a two-term governor like Dayton doing some serious damage. In terms of other cases at the state Supreme Court that we were not going to cover as our case in chief today, um, it was pretty thin picking. Um, but there was one that, that I found somewhat interesting. It's called Christensen v. Healy. It's a family court case. So here are the facts. Um, Healy and Christensen are the parents of a child that was born in 2010. Uh, before uh, all these current events, Healy had sole custody of the child and Healy's residence was the child's primary residence. Um, Christensen then moved to change the schedule to an alternating week schedule rather than having Healy have sole custody. Uh, And that would also affect the child's primary residence because they would be split. So the district court denied Christensen's motion uh, and they held that Christensen failed to satisfy Minnesota Statute 518.18 which says that a change of custody order can issue only if the moving party shows that the child may be endangered. Hmm. Um, So I think uh, no one disputes that the child wasn't endangered in this scenario. Uh, The issue that the state Supreme Court is going to consider is whether this endangerment statute is the right standard um, for the kind of motion that we're looking at right now for a a change to a custodial and primary residence situation, or whether instead we should apply a different statute that simply determines what the best interests of the child are. Hmm. Um, A little surprised that that's not worked out already. Right, because endangerment of the child is a pretty stringent standard, and you can see a lot of instances where life changes or parental responsibilities can affect what the parents or guardians want to do for a custody arrangement. So seems yeah. I remember from our time at the court, uh, we didn't have a, a ton of family law cases, but there are a lot of family law, you know, just litigation in the state. 
-hmm. And the family law bar is very eager for the state Supreme Court to provide some finality on stuff like this. So I'm sure it'll be appreciated. Mm -hmm. And you can see why, because these obviously affect children's and parents' lives. Our principal case this week, uh, moving on, is State v. Edstrom. This is a case about the Fourth Amendment, about uh, searches and seizures, uh, and also about uh, the analog to the Fourth Amendment in Minnesota, Article 1, Section 10 of the state constitution. Uh, It's also about drug-sniffing dogs. It's kind of fun. Um, So I'll let Allison provide some factual background. So the facts of this case are as follows. Edstrom, who is the respondent now at the Minnesota Supreme Court, Um, had a felony on his record prior to this incident that led to this case. Um, But Edstrom was the subject of an anonymous tip received by the Hopkins police saying that he was selling a substantial amount of methamphetamine out of his apartment in Brooklyn Park. So then acting on that tip, the police then entered the common hallway area of Edstrom's apartment in Brooklyn Park gaining access with the use of a key called a Knox box that the landlord had installed specifically for use by law enforcement. And then law enforcement used a narcotics detection dog in the hallway outside of what they knew to be Edstrom's apartment. And we should just be clear about what a Knox box is going forward, because I didn't know at least. A Knox box is something that, uh, from what I understand, a, a landlord can agree to install on the outside of an apartment complex Mm -hmm. and it provides a key that can be accessed only by law enforcement to the building. So it's a a kind of previous agreement by the landlord to permit law enforcement to enter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the record in this case doesn't clearly state whether the tenants had agreed or even had explicit knowledge that this Knox box was there. So once law enforcement gained access to the hallway outside of Edstrom's apartment, the dog, the narcotics detection dog that they had, sniffed multiple doors in the hallway, including Edstrom's, and then the dog gave a positive alert to indicate that it did detect drugs inside Edstrom's apartment. So using the fact that the narcotics detection dog sensed drugs from outside the door of Edstrom's apartment, in combination with the anonymous tip they had received, the police were then able to get a judge to issue a warrant for an unannounced search of Edstrom's apartment. So then in executing that search of Edstrom's apartment, the police then recovered 227 grams of methamphetamine, multiple firearms, shotgun shells and rounds, and several digital scales that had methamphetamine residue on them. They also found Edstrom inside of the apartment, whom they promptly arrested. Um, So then Edstrom was subsequently charged with violating three criminal statutes. First, for selling the meth, the state charged Edstrom with first-degree sale of a controlled substance. Second, for possessing the meth, they charged him with first-degree possession of a controlled substance. And finally, because he did have a prior felony on his record, the state charged him with possession of a firearm by an ineligible person. So Edstrom then at his trial claimed that the evidence that the law enforcement found in his apartment was actually obtained in violation of the Fourth Amendment and the analogous Minnesota provision, Article 1, Section 10, because the narcotics detecting dog was searching the area around his home without a warrant. So he claims this violated the Fourth Amendment because it was clearly curtilage of his home and an area in which he claims he had a reasonable expectation of privacy. And we'll get into what that means in a little bit. So to just do a a little 
basic background about the Fourth Amendment and Article 1, Section 10. Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution guarantees the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, so we have a Supreme Court of the United States case called Katz saying that is a protection of people and not places. Uh, at the core of the right, uh, says another Supreme Court case, uh, stands the right of a man to retreat into his home and there be free from unreasonable government intrusion. So here we are talking about a person's home uh, at the core of that right. Uh, another case, Jardines, which will become relevant, says when it comes to the Fourth Amendment, the home is first among equals. Mm. So uh, two different kinds of Fourth Amendment protection in this area. One, uh, it protects people from physical intrusions. So this tends to take the form of property rights analysis. And then uh, second, and additionally, it protects people from unreasonable government intrusions into their legitimate expectations of privacy. So we'll take these uh, in turn as the court, I think, tried to with, with some kind of bleeding between the property and the uh, privacy analyses. But we'll start with the, the physical intrusion into a constitutionally protected area. And as soon as we do that, we need to talk about curtilage. So curtilage is just a legal term about the area immediately surrounding and associated with your home. Your home itself inside is protected, but the Fourth Amendment also protects you from unwarranted searches into certain areas in addition to your home, which we associate with it. So that naturally is just gonna open up a big unanswered question about what areas count. Uh, so the Supreme Court of the United States has a case called Dunn. Uh, it lays out a general standard that says, uh, Basically, the curtilage are, is areas of the home that are so immediately tied to the home that it, they need to be placed under the umbrella of Fourth Amendment protection. That does basically nothing to help. It does lay out a few factors, um, four of them. So one, proximity to the home. Two, is the part of the home uh, within an enclosure surrounding the home. Three, how does the homeowner use the area? And four, what are the steps taken by the resident to protect the area? from observation by people passing by. And I think the curtilage analysis outlined by the Dunn factors is obviously what the state and Edstrom are gonna be fighting about here because law enforcement without the warrant did not go into Edstrom's apartment. They were outside the apartment. So the question becomes, is any of that area that they entered when they first went in using the Knox box and the narcotics detection dog, the curtilage of Edstrom's apartment, which would violate his property rights? Sure. So uh, one recent case addressing this curtilage question at the U.S. Supreme Court uh, was called Jardines. This is from 2013. And uh, that case concerned police officers' warrantless, warrantless use of a drug-sniffing dog on the front porch of a single-family home. And Justice Scalia held that under a property rights analysis, uh, not dealing with the privacy rights portion of the Fourth Amendment, that it was illegal to use a drug-sniffing dog on the porch of a single-family home without a warrant. Uh, so the other case that's really on point here is a case from the Minnesota Court of Appeals in 2016 that addressed this precise question but did not get up to the state Supreme Court. Uh, so there, there was a dog sniff search outside a residence door in a secured multi-unit condominium. And the state court of appeals held that this did not require a warrant under the Fourth Amendment, um, didn't address Article 1, Section 10. They went through these uh, done factors, the four of them. They said, this isn't an enclosed area. Uh, it's an area visible to anyone who might walk by because it's a, a hallway in a condominium. And so uh, 
cops don't need to get a warrant before they come in. I'd like to make a comment on Loom before, unless you have more that you want to say about it. Uh, no. Okay. So I think it's probably important to mention here that the Minnesota Supreme Court doesn't really have much, if any, case law outlining this property rights analysis under the Federal Fourth Amendment or its analogous Minnesota state constitution. Um, So this Lum or Loom case from the Court of Appeals is what the Court of Appeals relied on for the curtilage analysis. Um, And they're walking through the done factors weighed against a conclusion that the area outside of apartment was curtilage. Um, But at the Court of Appeals, Edstrom does make the argument that the done factors need to be re-envisioned in the context of an apartment building because it is enclosed from the street view, um, though it's not enclosed from the select few neighbors that you have. And certain aspects of the fact that you're living in an apartment building obviate the need to enclose the area or take steps to secure it from viewers from the street. Um, And Estrem actually drops that argument by the time he gets to the Supreme Court and decides not to argue that the done factors need to be re-envisioned in the context of a multifamily dwelling. And I think that might have been a mistake for him um, because I think a lot of the done factors were clearly envisioning a single family standalone dwelling. And um, I think Loom or Lum at the Court of Appeals is not only not presidential at the Supreme Court as it was at the Court of Appeals, which is why they decided not to overrule it, but it also may be open to reinterpretation. Yeah, and the court was pretty alive to the potential problems between the problems inherent in having one set of standards for single family homes and another for apartments. We can play you a couple of clips uh, on that score. Council, do you agree that if what happened here had happened on the front porch of a standalone house, that it would be unconstitutional? It would be unconstitutional under Jardines given the property analysis. So why does it make sense that if it's unconstitutional to bring a dog to sniff the door of a private house, that it's constitutional to bring a dog to sniff the door of an apartment? Why does that make sense? Council, what troubles me here is that if we hold that an apartment um, uniformly lacks any Fourth Amendment curtilage, Aren't we just concluding that those who live in apartments or any other form of multi-unit housing simply have fewer Fourth Amendment rights, property-based Fourth Amendment rights within their homes than those who happen to live in a single-family home? So I think Edstrom does certainly argue that the door itself to Edstrom's apartment was curtilage and the dog entered the curtilage of Edstrom's apartment when he sniffed it, or she. I don't know if Cato is a boy or girl dog. But I do, as I mentioned, think Edstrom gave up a little bit too much ground when he was willing to not argue that the common hallways could also constitute curtilage. Because as noted, the some justices on the court seem really sensitive to the arbitrary distinction between multi 
family dwellings and single family dwellings. And not only do some justices on this court seem attuned to those arbitrary distinctions, but those exact concerns have also animated other courts, particularly the Seventh Circuit has been cited by Edstrom. by specifically ruling with an eye towards the disparate impact on the poor and minorities of limiting this curtilage analysis to single-family detached dwellings versus multifamily apartments. Yeah, and I think the state's attorney didn't have a super satisfying answer for this. He, he basically said, you know, these standards are going to end up being somewhat different. And, you know, there are reasons uh, why they, they will be different if you just apply the single-family standard to apartments. And I, I think he was fine with that, and certain members of the court were, were more concerned. Another uh, interesting angle to the curtilage argument is, is like Allison said, there, there's a, some confusion about how much Edstrom uh, is even fighting for to be the curtilage. And then uh, if you zoom in from there, I think there, there's confusion even about where the state felt the curtilage line is drawn. And Justice Lillehaug was trying to ferret out precisely that boundary uh, at length. So we'll play this uh, longer clip from him. So, so tell me, what is the boundary of Mr. Ed- Edstrom's curtilage? Isn't the door at least part of the curtilage, even if the hallway is not? The door is still in the common hallway. So, for example, the neighbor, given the small area of the hallway, the neighbor moving in very well may be touching the door as they're trying to get the stuff into the unit. And again, whether it's the threshold of the door or the seam of the door, Davis did not make that Okay, so your position is the outside of the door is not part of the curtilage. How about the inside of the door? Yes. How about the area underneath the door, the crack between the door and the floor? Well, I think when you cross the threshold, that's when you start to get into the curtilage. So now, instead, the, let's say instead of a dog here, the cops decided to use a sensitive device that can detect odors. A little device like a bug, they stick it right under the door, between the door, the bottom of the door and the floor. Do they need a search warrant to do that? If to it, get the same information that that dog would get? If it's only revealing the presence or absence of narcotics, the United States Supreme Court has ruled that that's not a search of the Fourth Amendment. If it crosses the threshold, then we may be in a situation where they are violating the curtilage rights of the unit. So, the, so where is the threshold? Is it, is it the area underneath the door? I, the threshold, I would contend, is when you cross over into the unit itself. The door itself is so not the So the area the underneath the door, between the bottom of the door and the floor, is not part of the curtilage? Is that your position? That is my position. I think that was very interesting, both because that's classic Justice Lilla Hogg, trying to really ferret out where exactly the line is on the rule of law that the state is proposing here. But it's also interesting because DLL is clearly trying to define the boundaries of curtilage, and what he ends up getting the state to admit is the inside of the door is curtilage, which is not curtilage, it's inside the home. And so essentially Justice Lilla Hogg has forced the state to say there is not really curtilage in an apartment multi-unit dwelling. And that's kind of an interesting admission. And it's interesting that the state doesn't want to come out and say that. 
but instead has to just say, well, the inside of the door is curtilage, which we know is just the inside of the home. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I, I think, it, right, it, it really puts a fine point on Justice Chudich and, to some extent, uh, Chief Justice Gilday's concerns about the differences between uh, apartments and single-family homes in that uh, not only is that, you know, there are no porch for apartments, but according to the state here, there's no curtilage full stop. Okay, so that wraps up the property analysis. Um, a little muddled, I think, and probably a sign of what's to come. Um, the other protections that are provided for under the Fourth Amendment are for violations of legitimate expectations of privacy. Um, so that you need to do a bunch of work to figure out what the heck a legitimate expectation of privacy is. Mm-hmm. A search is protected under the Fourth Amendment's privacy analysis if the person who was searched has, one, a subjective expectation of privacy... And two, that expectation is one that society is prepared to recognize as reasonable. Yeah. So in addition to needing to have an expectation of privacy, which is a subjective component, and um, an expectation that's legitimate, which is the expecta- uh, the objective component, there are a couple other uh, colorations in the law that become relevant here. One is Illinois v. Cabayas, which was in 2005. And the relevant portion of law that came out of that United States Supreme Court case is that any interest in possessing contraband cannot be deemed a legitimate expectation of privacy. And thus, governmental conduct that only reveals the possession of contraband compromises no legitimate privacy interest. So you can see where the state's going to start to rely on the fact that we're using a narcotics detection dog here to only identify contraband. And so uh, one of the state's big arguments is this is a drug-sniffing dog. Uh, It's not a camera. It's not binoculars. It's a dog that knows how to sniff drugs. This is solely uh, a search for illegal activity. It's a pretty strong argument uh, that gets some pushback. Just a little hog notes, medicinal marijuana, uh, legal in Minnesota. Certain uh, opioids may be illegal in some forms, uh, illegal if you have a prescription. So not as clean as the state may want it to be. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, the drug sniffing dog is a more refined search than uh, some other types of surveillance that cops might use in these situations. Mm -hmm. And I think the state also navigates that pretty well by saying, if we need to change how dogs are trained so they can't detect marijuana, then that's something we're prepared to do to make sure that the tools we're using only detect contraband, which Cabayas says is not a violation of the Fourth Amendment. So I think we're going to bleed into the Minnesota constitutional analysis here, at which the court doesn't always distinguish very clearly from the Fourth Amendment analysis. But you kind of have a, a battle between two cases. One is uh, is called Davis, and that's from 2007. It was written by uh, Chief Justice Lori Gilday. Which is very important. Uh, and... Here, here are the facts in Davis. So the cops get a tip that Davis was growing weed in his apartment. They go into the building. Uh, there's no record evidence of how the cops got in, whether they uh, were allowed in, whether they had a key or what. Um, they use a drug-sniffing dog, which alerts the cops to drugs at Davis's door. They get a warrant, find drugs, arrest Davis. He moves to suppress. And the Minnesota Supreme Court says the cops did not need a warrant in this situation. They needed only a reasonable, articulable suspicion, which they had. And they described the dog sniff at the apartment door as a minimal intrusion. So very, very similar facts to those here uh, with a few crucial differences. One, 
Uh, it's not clear the permission that the cops had to enter the apartment. As compared to here, we know that the cops got in through the Knox box, so they had at least the permission of the building owner, if not the building's tenants. And then the second distinction that Edstrom tries to draw is that the opinion in Davis focuses on a search of the hallway, uh, whereas here we're talking about a search of a specific residence door, Edstrom's door. So if that's all that Edstrom had to stand on, I think he would be screwed. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's those things plus one other potentially big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that Davis is in t- 2007, Minnesota Supreme Court case, almost on all fours with the facts in Edstrom. But intervening in that time is this case we mentioned, Jardines, at the United States Supreme Court in 2013. Justice Scalia decided that case on a property rights basis, so not applicable to our privacy analysis here. However, uh, there was a concurrence, and there was also some interesting language in Justice Scalia's majority opinion that maybe is relevant here. So uh, the concurrence was by Justice Kagan. She concluded, uh, along with two other justices, that the warrantless use of a drug-sniffing dog also violates privacy rights. She compared the drug-sniffing dog to super high-powered binoculars and says that the dog is similar to cops' use of a device that uh, is not in general public use uh, and is being used to explore details of the home that would previously have been unknowable without physical intrusion. She said this kind of use of a sensitive kind of technology is how she's categorizing the dog violates our minimum expectations of privacy. So Edstrom uh, leans very heavily on this three justice concurrence and also notes that there's some stray language from Justice Scalia's property law analysis in which he says that using a drug sniffing dog is uh, like a visitor exploring the front path with a metal detector. So he seems, and the majority, uh, you know, by connection, seems on board with Justice Kagan's insight that the dog here is is some kind of extra step beyond uh, just the cops showing up to the door and that maybe that's cause for concern. And we should also note that this line of argument that Jardines kind of changed the level of intrusion of a dog sniff was not only persuasive, but the prevailing argument at the Court of Appeals, which did side with Edstrom on this point because they agreed. Um, And they said, we conclude that Jardines has altered the relevant Fourth Amendment analysis by reflecting a greater concern with the intrusiveness of a narcotics detection dog than was prevalent at the time of Davis. And so a lot of time is spent in oral argument at the Supreme Court on do we have to overrule Davis? But I think a fair reading of Edstrom's argument here is Davis has already been essentially overruled by Jardines, and now it is inapplicable, not that the Minnesota Supreme Court has to take the step itself of overruling it. I think that's a little... I, I get why they want to say that. However, we're, we're ultimately talking about a three-justice concurrence. Um, so I, I think there's a fair argument that the United States Supreme Court has strongly hinted that this is the direction they, they will go, although I'm sure the state would dispute that, given that I'm sure Justice Kagan wishes she had another justice and was writing a majority opinion, mm-hmm. but she didn't. Um, but ultimately what Edstrom is asking the state to do is overrule a case from 11 years ago on the basis of a United States Supreme Court three-justice concurrence. That's a pretty tall ask. So the state comes back and uh, relies heavily on this Knoxbox factor. The, and the, the, the key of this case is the key inside the Knoxbox. I've listened to oral argument twice, and I've audibly groaned. 
both times I heard him say that. I feel like the stuttering at the start of that is him just focusing everyone to really cue in because he's about to deliver a really good line. You know he wrote that down. Um, I appreciated that. So the, the legal relevance of that is uh, that the state's attorney notes that uh, some apartments in Brooklyn Park don't have Knox boxes and that here uh, the property owner chose to grant police access to the building, unlike other boxes, uh, unlike other apartment buildings. So uh, there should be a, a less heightened sense of privacy from the tenants. I, I, I think the inference, though he doesn't say it, is that if you don't want to live in an apartment building with a Knox box, then you shouldn't go live in one. I'm not, as a previous uh, you know, tenant's attorney during law school, super sympathetic to that argument. It's not on the record whether the tenants even knew about this, let alone whether the you know economic reality of renting an apartment in the Twin Cities area allows you to shop around for Knox boxes. But the, the state does lean pretty hard on that distinction. Right, and I think the only justice who really keyed into the question of whether this was an important factor and whether it negated any Fourth Amendment rights that may or may not have existed in the common hallway or immediately outside the door was Justice McKegg, who asked both attorneys about the Knox box and whether that changed the analysis here. Counsel, one of the important factors that the 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 police had access to the to the key box, the Knox box. That is an important factor, and it's important because that puts that case squarely into the realm of Davis. And would we have a different scenario if they did not have access to that Knox box? If they did not have access, they needed to access the building in some other way. I think her line of questioning and possibly whatever whatever thoughts she has that are animating her to ask those questions are actually kind of important because the state does admit that the Fourth Amendment analysis might change if the Knox box wasn't there and the police had to use some other forms of entry into the apartment because it gets at questions of, do the tenants know that the Knox box was there? And if they didn't, then essentially you're having a situation where the Fourth Amendment analysis here and the Fourth Amendment rights of the apartment dwellers are essentially dictated or waived, if you will, by a landlord, uh, someone who's not subject to these searches in this case. And that isn't really addressed in the briefs or the oral argument. Maybe that's settled Fourth Amendment law, but certainly a policy concern that I think the justices should have on their minds as they're working through this case. Yeah, Justice Trudish takes a slightly different angle on it, uh, which is about what knowledge the landlord, him or herself, had about what the police would do if they entered the building via the Knox box. Did they know, uh, did the landlord know that the police were entering the building with a dog? According to the officer's- Specifically to, to sniff somebody's door? According to the officer's testimony, they knew that the police were entering the building to conduct investigations, uh, and they had done this in the past. So I read that as kind of a non-answer by the state. Uh, you know, the landlord knew that the cops wanted to come into the building because they wanted, you know, cops conduct investigations. That's like a, a two-word summary of what it is to be a police person. So mm-hmm. I, I see that as a non-answer. Um, separately, as far as the tenants, the state makes an argument that there's a public policy interest in allowing police to conduct these searches without warrants because, uh, you know, this person had guns, meth, etc. That's dangerous. Uh, you wouldn't want other tenants to get mixed up in that. 
Justice Chudich uh, kind of flips that coin and says, might there be other uh, problems for the tenants here rather than protections? Counsel, along these lines, though, one of the points that you stress are the interests of the law-abiding neighbors in your brief. And uh, this seems to me to cut both ways because the privacy rights of the law-abiding people were certainly affected when the police allowed those, the dog to sniff at their doors instead of the one that they had the reasonable articula- articulable suspicion about. I do think she does an effective job of kind of flipping the state's argument there on its head. I think you can see this argument in two ways. One, you can just think about, from a common sense perspective, what privacy rights people should have in their apartments. That's some of what we've just been talking about. The separate, more legalistic view is, is the state Supreme Court going to overturn a clear decision that it made 11 years ago, written by the sitting Chief Chief Justice? Uh, because the United States Supreme Court in the interim has issued a three-justice concurrence suggesting that it may expand the Fourth Amendment in that direction. That is a tough ask. And so I I think that Edstrom is smart to lean on the common sense angle of this um, and not insult the courts or Justice Gilday specifically is uh, kind of... dignity and and the importance of of that precedent. Mm -hmm. And I think we can get a sense from oral argument on where the vote might be headed in this case, given the factors that you just outlined, um, the clear Davis precedent here and the suggestions from the Supreme Court that it might at some point in the future go a different direction. I think you definitely have at least three votes to side with the state here and reverse the Court of Appeals. I'm thinking of the Chief Justice, Justice Anderson, and then also Justice McKegg seemed pretty harsh on her questions to Edstrom on those points. Um, and then the only question marks would be Justice Chudich and Justice Lillahog, who I think we're certainly asking more critical questions of the state, but that certainly doesn't necessarily indicate that that's where their vote lies. Agreed as to the result. And I think maybe there's a glimmer of hope, even if the uh, respondent Edstrom loses here, because there's a suggestion that the state Supreme Court is amenable to changing this doctrine if the U.S. Supreme Court leads the way. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to be on the basis of a three-justice con- concurrence. Mm-hmm. I also think it's interesting that there's only five justices deciding this case. Justice Hudson recused a good thing, too. Otherwise, we might be split 3-3 with a six-person court that we have now. Um, but kind of interesting that the high schoolers at Anoka High School are, at Anoka high school are seeing our uh, Minnesota Supreme Court at, down to five justices. Yeah, I don't think we mentioned that. So this is a roadshow argument by the state Supreme Court. They do this a few times a year, uh, usually at uh, high schools, and uh, it's super fun. We will post clips to our Twitter account of the weird backlit uh, framing of the lawyers and uh, hence the sketchy audio and the slightly performative questions by certain justices, perhaps. Uh, It's a cool public service that they do. It is. And I think the backlighting is most likely so you cannot see the number of students sleeping by the end of argument. You can, if you look closely, see (laughs) yawns uh, throughout the argument. No offense to the lawyers. But it's a great, it's a great service they do to get outreach to high schoolers about the work of the Minnesota Supreme Court. Uh, All right, Allison, what did we learn from the case today? We learned today to keep your narcotics in the back of your apartment. 
uh, tip for meth dealers everywhere. Out of sniff range of the common hallway. Thanks to Joy, our communications director. Uh, check out our website, thecommnlaw.com. And maybe keep a window open. Minnesota's only <laughs> still, still meth advice from you. Uh, go to our website for Minnesota's only free CLE calendar. Get those uh, free CLEs. Also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, at the C-O-M-M-N law. Uh, is that right? Is it? Is there a the? Yeah, there's a the. Okay. We had that discussion for a long um, time and <laughs> decided to keep the the. <laughs> and go to our website where you can leave us angry or positive feedback um, and check out other episodes. 